Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. time together and I'm thinking about the story of the Buddha's death when the Buddha was dying some people say he was poisoned he was in a lot of pain and the Buddha was used to feeling pain because since he was young he had ulcers and uh, so he knew all about discomfort and, but he was getting very ill very quickly and he asked his attendant, Ananda, who was his closest friend, to uh, come with him between two sala trees and make a bed. And that way the Buddha could lie down between the two trees. Uh, I think as many of you know, the Buddha loved trees. Uh, his earliest childhood memory was under a tree. He was supposedly born under a tree. He gave all of his teachings under trees. Uh, he was enlightened under a tree. And adapt. I think somehow we've forgotten about that because all of our practice is so indoors. And it's funny because in the Buddha's instruction on meditation practice, he says you should do it sitting cross-legged under a tree. <laughs> and you know we focus so much on the details of all his teachings, but we always skip that part. <laughs> um, so when the Buddha was dying. Ananda came to him and said, uh, uh, what do you need? And the Buddha had a fever, so Ananda would take water and he would pour it on the Buddha's legs. Maybe you've had a relative dying and you've done this too. Maybe you've uh, rubbed their feet when they're feet. People when they're in the hospital, their feet are so cold. So you really have to rub their, their feet. So this is what Ananda was doing. And then he started crying, and the Buddha said, don't cry, Ananda. All conditioned things break down. And then he said, uh, be a light unto yourself, and let yourself be an island and a refuge, and don't take refuge in anything. For those of you who are Buddhists, this is a bit of a strange sentence. Because we're always told you're supposed to take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma teaching, and in Sangha, in community. <laughs> but in the Buddha's last words, he says to Ananda, Ananda, take refuge in yourself. We 
which I would translate as no, that's your home. That your home is not separate from who you are. I like the word refuge. It's where you get the word fugitive. And refuge is to return. The fugitive comes home again. The part of us that we've been talking about class after class, it's running away. Maybe you're even seeing it right now. Comes home again. So what I love about this is this reminder that we go in deep, we go in deep in relationship, we go in deep in practice, and we get in touch with all these energies that we thought we had control over. We get in touch with anger. We get in touch with joy. We get in touch with peace. Our sexual energy. Our fears. Learning how to be with all these energies. Uh, but with integrity and with peace. With creativity and not with reactivity. With responsiveness and not unconsciousness. And then the last thing the Buddha says is, all conditioned things break down. And as we learned a few days ago in dependent origination, everything is a conditioned thing, which means everything breaks down. Tread the path with care. And those are his last words. So whenever there's an ending of some kind, I always think of these words. Uh, they're also a reminder that there's two sides to this practice. One side is the inside side, which is really looking deeply at our lives to really see what they're made of and how they happen. And the other side of practice is the heart side, compassion side. And we need both. So some of us are more attracted to the insight side, and some of us are more attracted to the heart practices. At the end of the first chapter of the Yoga Sutra, setting us up for the second chapter, which is what we've been studying, Patanjali talks about obstacles to practice. And I wanted to look at his approach to how we should work with obstacles. Because obstacles are funny. When you have an obstacle in your life, the interesting thing about having an obstacle is that it, show, it really shows you where you are. But then this question arises, well, when I see how I am, or how I function, well, what do I do? Am I just stuck repeating all of my ancestors' patterns? So here is what Patanjali says. Thank you, Rachel, for writing this out in your best elementary school. <laughs> yes. Is this your uh, translation? This is Chip Hartramp's translation. So this is line uh, 30 from the first chapter. Sickness, apathy, 
doubt, carelessness, laziness. Is anybody going, oh, that, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Sickness, apathy, doubt, carelessness, laziness, hedonism, delusion, lack of progress, and inconsistency are all distractions which, by stirring up consciousness, called the chitta vrittis, act as barriers to stillness. So, everybody is going to get sick. But when we're overcome with sickness, and we don't have the skills to work with it, and we're really identified with the sickness, it's a barrier to entering our lives more deeply. Everybody should have doubt. If you have faith and you have no doubt, it's very dangerous. They always work together. But if you have doubt and it becomes so overwhelming that it stops you from engaging in your practice, in your life, then it's a barrier. Laziness. I don't even have to go through that one. <laughs> Hedonism, I don't know if I have to go through that one either. <laughs> so these are all distractions that stir up the chitta vidis, that stir up attention, and they become barriers to a deeper engagement in our lives. Then, line 131, when they do, they give they, they create the following symptoms of dis, the, the following symptoms distress, depression, or the inability to maintain steadiness of posture or breathing. And I think we all know this, right? You go out like hedonism, you go out for a late night of what are people what are you guys doing these days? <laughs> I don't go out at night. Yoga. <laughs> yeah. So you go to a late night yoga party, drinking way too much wheatgrass, and then the next day you kind of stumble into your downward facing dog, or you go to sit still. You know what I'm talking about. So pure. Um, when they do, one may experience distress, depression, or the inability to maintain steadiness of posture or breathing. What I like about this is Patanjali is always described as a philosopher. And it sort of shows, rather than seeing this as philosophy, this is a manual for how to work with these energies in your life. It's not a kind of intellectual treatise about the nature of reality. One can subdue these symptoms by working with any one of the following principles of practice. And then he gives a whole list. Only some of them are here. As you can see, the, the numbers start skipping. So he says, consciousness settles as one radiates Maitri, or for those of you who are Buddhist practitioners in the Pali, that word is metta, karuna, Mudita, Upeksha, friendliness, compassion, delight, and equanimity. Um, 
the chant we chant at the end of class comes from this section. These are called the Brahma Viharas, the abodes of Brahma. And that's an interesting thing, actually. The, the word Brahma, Brahma is a creator god, but Brahma refers to the energies of creativity. Whenever I hear the word Brahma, I always think of a motorcycle engine. Like, vroom, vroom. Because Brahma means to make, to accelerate, to create. So, to be in the realm, Vihara is a temple, or an abode, or a realm. To be in the temple of creativity, the sacredness of creativity, the following four practices need to be used when we're caught up, entangled, or stopped by obstacles. The first is friendliness. And we bring friendliness towards all things, whether pleasant or painful, good or bad. Whether they're sukha or dukkha, sweet or painful. Kusala and Akkusala. Um, the opposite of Dukkha, etymologically, is Sukha. If you, you know that word? It's actually where you get the word sugar. <coughs> sukha, sweet. Yeah. Sukha. There's a joke in translators that too much Sukha causes truth decay. <laughs> um, so, Let's talk a little bit about self-judgment. That's a big obstacle that comes up in practice. Maybe that's the one that flattens meditation practice into a long plateau, I think, that's hard to recover from. Is when you sit and you don't even see that whatever's arising, you're looking at from a negative space. Because usually what happens when self-judgment is very strong is that we see it, and then we judge it, you see? And we think, oh, I'm being mindful of self-judgment, but actually you're judging the self-judgment, because that's your default. So when you see something in yourself that's hard to look at, and the whole process of spiritual practice, the whole path of relationship, is looking at things in us that are sometimes really hard to deal with. Somebody says something to you that you don't want to hear. How do you not turn it inward or turn it against them? How do you not swallow it or spit it out? Well, you start with friendliness. That's why I was talking about this ancestor practice of thinking of the sanskaras as ancestors. Because then you can see a habit in yourself that maybe someone else points out to you. And when you see it, you see, oh, this is the same thing my mom did. This is the same thing my mom said my grandmother did. And it's not that you don't have responsibility. You still have responsibility to look after it. But it makes some space to have another relationship to it, rather than personalize everything so much. So the first move we make when something difficult arises is metta, maitri, friendliness. 
A lot of times that's translated as loving kindness. Is that basically what the wedge is, that tapas? So this is one way of using the wedge, is that we've been talking about the wedge as just opening up mindfulness practice towards something. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to add to the, we're going to perfume mindfulness with this energy of loving kindness. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that we're giving our attention to something, but we're doing it with the spirit or with the attitude of friendliness or loving kindness. Anxiety say? arises, and you say, oh, hi, friend. And that sounds, you know, really childish or something, but actually, it's really childish. <laughs> and that's a good thing. And, and then you get down at the level of anxiety, and you're with anxiety. There's this Jewish story that I really love about a kid who thinks he's a chicken. And so he lives underneath the table at his parents' house, naked, like a chicken, and he'll only eat off the floor. And the parents don't know what to do. Actually, my eight and a half months old is kind of doing So they don't know what to do. So they call the rabbi and they say, we don't know what to do. Our son thinks he's a chicken. So the rabbi says, I'll be right over. So the rabbi comes over, and the rabbi immediately takes off all his clothes and gets underneath the table with the kid and says, hi, I'm the rabbi. The kid says, hi, I'm a chicken. And they talk together. And then he says, uh, what are you eating? He says, oh, well, whatever I eat, I, I, my parents put it on the floor. So I don't know what's coming, but when it comes, it comes on the floor. The rabbi says, okay, well, I'll eat with you. The rabbi eats off Hangs out with them all day. And then uh, night comes, and the rabbi says, uh, it's cold down here on the floor. I'm going to put my shirt on. And the kid says, well, you can't put your shirt on. We're chickens. <laughs> and he says, yeah, but it's pretty, it's pretty cold. And if I get sick, then I'm not going to be able to be a chicken here under the floor. And I don't want to be a sick chicken. So he puts on his, his shirt, and then the kid goes, yeah, 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 it's cold. So the kid puts on his shirt. And eventually they're dressed. And then the rabbi says, you know, I'm very old and it's really hurting my back. <laughs> and uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna get up and lie on the couch tonight. But in the morning, I'm gonna come back down and be a chicken. So the kid says, you know, that's a good idea. I'm gonna sleep with you on the couch and we'll sleep as chickens on the couch. And anyways, you can see where this is going. Eventually the kid gets back up. Um, you could read this all as, you know, the rabbi trying to work the kid's eccentricity. <laughs> but you can also see it another way. Which is, the rabbi is able to get down to the level of the kid. And meet him. You know, it's like, sometimes I notice this a lot, having uh, two kids, is that sometimes adults talk to the kids, but not at the level of the kid. And you see this with kids, they don't relate to adults when the adult is like up here talking down to the kid. But when you meet a little kid and you kneel down and you get onto their level, they engage you when you're eye to eye with them. So this is what Maitri is all about. 
When something's arising, you create the space of friendliness. So you can say, here, come sit down at this table. It's like you're a really good host. You say, oh, my body is going to be the dwelling place. And I'm going to be a good host. And whatever arises, it's, I'm going to let it in with this attitude of friendliness. And then to bring in compassion. Compassion is a beautiful word in English. I think it's one of the few English words much better than the Sanskrit word. Because calm means together, and passion comes from the word pathos, which means suffering. So compassion means suffering together. If there's friendliness, then you can be with others who are also wounded like you. Mudita delight. Delight I like very much. This is like when you... Has anybody here ever been really sick? Like, just had like even a bad flu or something. And you're just in bed, you think you're going to die, you know, whatever. And then, one day you get out of bed, you go downstairs, you, get, you, go, you walk out of the house, and the world is like, it's incredible. The air, the trees, the birds. Has anyone had this experience? Where suddenly everything is just so delightful. And meanwhile, you know, you've just lost 10 pounds and, you know, you look awful and you haven't shaved your whatever. <laughs> but there's so much delight. And the delight is beautiful because it has nothing to do with you. It's just the sense that our lives are so precious. I, I feel that way sometimes when I... We're not far from University Avenue. And for those of you who don't live in Toronto, which is many of you, University Avenue is where all the hospitals are in downtown. Most of the hospitals are in downtown. And I've walked out of some of those hospitals after uh, a friend's birth. I've walked out after a relative's death. I've walked out after visiting a friend who is having surgery. I've walked out after a student who's died. And so I have this association, university is what you walk out into and experience this sense of wonder. How is all this still going on? So this is what's meant by delight. Even though this is really hard, thankful actually, that this is happening. Because even though I don't want to look at it, or even though this process has been really painful, this is actually working my heart into a more resilient state. Even though some part of me doesn't want to change. I always think that you should always have some resistance in your practice. Because if there's resistance in your practice, it's a sign that change is happening. Because some part of us is always resistant to change. And when there's no resistance at all, there can be phases like that. But usually when there's no resistance for a long time, probably nothing's changing. 
Upeksha means equanimity. So this is the practice of being able to meet what's arising with stability, with steadiness. Equanimity, I think, is the part of practice that is most influenced by our community and our teachers. Because I think most of us learn real equanimity, and I would translate this just to be a little more Christian, as grace. And I think equanimity, while it's important to think about as a meditative technique, is also something that we just internalize from watching our friends and our community and our teachers practice for many, many years. When I started Center of Gravity in my backyard many years ago, um, my thought was, I don't know if anyone's going to be interested, but this is what I'm going to teach, and I think it needs to happen in community, and I hope people will come. But the most important thing is that I'm just going to do this every day. And I'm going to show everyone who comes my practice. And I'm going to share with them my practice. And I'm going to teach my practice. What I do. And then this will inspire me to practice. But it'll create steadiness in other people. Because when I look at my teachers, their steadiness uh, has inspired me. That was it, that was the extent of I didn't think about how you have to have a board of directors. Just steadiness. Steadiness over time. So, those are the Brahma Viharas. Then, Patanjali says, or, <laughs> and he does this a lot, or, which is, I don't know if it's saying, if you can't do that, because you're just not ready, or you're just not into that. <laughs> then another way you can work is by pausing at the end of your exhale or at the top of your inhale. So what's it like to feel laziness? To notice how laziness gives rise to depression. And then instead of identifying with it, really go into what you're feeling there. <coughs> the end of the exhale. Let go. I really feel like if people can exhale really softly for years and years and years, they won't be angry. steadily observing as new sensations materialize. As the patternings of consciousness subside, so do you understand what's meant by it? So that's chitta vritti, that's like all of the storytelling, narrative, entanglement, the past, the future, what we call early the default motor network, or our reactivity. As the patternings of consciousness subside, a new way of seeing arises called samapati. 
translated here as coalescence. And it saturates our attention like a jewel. Imagine a jewel shining behind attention. And the jewel reflects equally whatever lies before it, whether subject, object, or the act of perceiving. Do you remember the triangle I drew? There's a sense organ, a sense object, and consciousness. So this is asking you to visualize that when the sense organ and sense object and consciousness settle, it, it, it seems like there is a clear seeing, like a jewel or a mirror, that can look at the subject, the object, or the act of perception, but doesn't get stirred up. It's like a lake. Imagine a lake that's, that's perfectly still, and then the geese fly overhead, and then the geese are perfectly mirrored in the lake. The lake doesn't say, oh, are those Canada geese? Oh, I wish I could hunt one of those and eat it. It just mirrors what moves over the lake. Or sometimes the lake is all choppy and you look at the lake and the geese are all fractals or they're broken up. You, don't, you can't actually see the geese move over the lake because the lake's all stirred up. So as consciousness settles, a clear way of seeing called somnopathy arises, which is what we often call awareness. So long as conceptual or linguistic knowledge pervades this experience, then it's called coalescence with thought. Should I move over? At this next stage, coalescence beyond thought, objects cease to be colored by memory, now formless, and only their essential nature shines forth. Now you can see here how words start getting very problematic when you try to talk about these states of practice. Because as soon as I say, as the pattern of consciousness settles behind it, awareness is watching, it's so easy then to go, oh, awareness, that's a thing. So that's why in his definition of awareness, which you also find in this, if you look at the Sanskrit, he uses the term swarupa shunya, empty of self-form. That awareness is not a thing. So there's awareing happening. Awareing is happening, not stirred up, not reactive. And the first stage of that is when there's awareness, but there's still some conceptuality. It still feels like it's happening to me. Um, that is coalescence with thought. And then, sometimes, language dissolves, and there's just what's happening. No subject, no object. This is called samapati beyond thought where objects, so let's think of an object. 
sadness is no longer colored by memory. It's formless, and only its essential nature shines forth. It's pure. It's sacred. When I was uh, younger, um, I went on a one-month retreat uh, on an island, and um, it was a small island in British Columbia called Savory Island, and you could walk around the whole island. And um, I had an alarm clock, uh, and not much else, in a treehouse. And so I would wake up early in the morning before the sunrise, and I would sit, uh, walk, sit, chant, have breakfast. And then I would sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, lunch. Then, after lunch, which is always the best part of the day, I would walk around the whole island. It took something like an hour and ten minutes. Then I would sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, dinner, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, go to bed. Um, for a month, every day, 30 days. And um, on the fourth day, I was so sad. I remember I was so sad. And uh, <coughs> so I just kept thinking about all the things that have happened in my life. My family this, my father that. And uh, all the best psychotherapy stories. And I uh, didn't help. The next day I was sad. Next day I was sad. And then I started to get worried. I thought, am I just going into some kind of depression or something? And then I remember almost five days later, walking around the island at, after lunch, and then noticing that the trees, and if anybody here has ever been to you know, rural parts of the West Coast, the trees are bent from the wind. And I remember looking at the trees and thinking, they're so sad. <laughs> and then when I looked at the ocean, salt water, it was just tears. The whole ocean was just like tears. And then, like rocks. I mean, we could call this anthropomorphic projection, but has anyone ever been in a kind of melancholic state? And then, no matter what kind of bird you hear, the call of the bird is just pure loneliness or pure sadness. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So this was going on. And then I had this experience where my mind went completely clear, just completely clear. I didn't have any thoughts. And then in that space, I saw something in the mind grasping, trying to find a story to explain the sadness, because there was sadness, but my mind was clear. Can you, can you, you've all had this experience in one way or another, but, but it, it had never been sustained in that way before in my, in my life. So there's sadness, but there's no thought associated to it. And then, everything just looked like pure sadness. My body and the ocean and the trees and the rocks were all exactly the same thing. Birth, sad. 
all the same thing. And then it stopped like that. It just stopped. And then I took an inhale and I had the feeling that I hadn't had since I was a little kid. Does anybody remember when they're a little kid and you cry really hard and then you finish crying and then you feel clean? Like you just, like, like the pipes have been cleaned up. Do you know? Do you know? It's like, so then I had that feeling and then the sadness didn't come back. And I couldn't stop thinking about this afterwards because I saw that the sadness was arising, but the reason why it was hanging out was because I kept it tethered to myself with these stories. Like when I feel these sensations that I bundle as sadness, it's that. Like it's the sadness enhanced by memory. And memory, as we all know, in addiction or craving, is distorted, right? The chemicals in the brain distort our memory when there's clinging. So then I saw, but it, the sadness was not, it was just sadness. And my mind was trying to find a story. And then when I couldn't find a story, there was sadness. And it was just sadness that was part of the natural world. Because there's sadness. Just like there's gravity. And that was a, a real life-changing moment for me. How can we feel what we feel? It's like a great victory when you can feel a feeling and it's just a feeling. It's not the whole drama of me. So, this is all to say, we need to do both things. We need to use our great Western psychological tradition to be able to recognize patterns that we repeat that we can't see. And mostly those patterns come out in relationship. And then we also need tools for learning how to feel what's in those patterns without the patterns. And that's what Patanjali is talking about here. How can you experience what's arising without superimposing memory and self on top of it? So just its essential nature shines forth. And what's its essential nature? Dokka? Impermanence? Not self. Doesn't exist. It's just chemicals. It's just stardust. It's several billion years of evolution, which in that moment transpire to create this unrepeatable moment of your life that have almost nothing to do with you. And how do you get that insight? Well, it begins with friendliness. 
You know this saying that the Quakers use, a God doesn't give you too much to handle. Sometimes I fight that. <laughs> but mostly I think it's true. So, are there any questions about this? Or comments before we wrap up this session? How can we make these qualities, friendliness, compassion, delight, equanimity, reflexes? Reflexes. The re first, they're the first responders. Yeah. Um, so, so when you're faced with things that are, that are quite difficult, uh, like injustice, yeah. um, and you want to respond with, with those things, mm -hmm. and let's say in a global sense, people's lives are on the line, mm -hmm. um, the planet is on the line, mm -hmm. uh, and you know that you can't fix it, mm -hmm. but you want to make a response that's meaningful mm -hmm. and still encompasses this. Yeah. You, 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 you that go to work. Protesting? <laughs> yeah, you go to work and you respond. So what would happen to on-the-street protesting that was imbued with these characteristics? There is a compassion that is very, very fierce. Like when you're in a relationship that's abusive or violent, you have to take out your sword of compassion and you have to end it. You cut it off. You cut someone out of your life. And it's not out of anger, it's out of compassion. Maybe the compassion is for the other person, I'm not going to enable them anymore. Or maybe the compassion is for yourself, I have to save my life. Or as Gandhi defined nonviolence, it's non-cooperation. I'm not going to cooperate with this kind of injustice anymore. I'm not cooperating. So, there is no grand blueprint, like, this is how we fight climate change. But I encourage all of you, because so many of you are politically engaged in various ways, how can you take your political and social ideals and imbue them with these energies, even at the least, that you're modeling it in your body? As I said the other day, activists who only operate out of anger really don't get much done. And also, when we're taking action that's very strong and clear and swift, usually it's coming out of friendliness. But the friendliness on behalf of what doesn't have a voice. Like, real nonviolence is about taking action on behalf of what does not have the ability to speak. The parts of our culture that are repressed, trees, land, rivers in Alberta, they don't have a voice. So out of our compassion for them, 
and our delight in them, we can take a swift form of action. So these are some ways to think about it. I wish I could just give you the right samskara. <laughs> You know, there's a story about a great Zen teacher named Shinra Suzuki, um, where at the San Francisco Zen Center, uh, when he was dying, he was ill, he, he had cancer, and, and I think people knew he was going to die. Anyways, they, they organized a community picnic at the top of a, a quite a big hill in San Francisco, and uh, they were going to get up to the top of the hill and dig a hole and make a bonfire have a picnic. And uh, apparently, uh, they all climbed up the hill, and Shinrazuki was getting old, and it was really hard for him to climb up the hill and get up there. And then when he got to the top, somebody said, uh, I forgot the shovel in someone's car. So immediately he turned around and started walking back down. Went and got the shovel. He got there. I've always loved it. He didn't think about it. He just immediately went and got the shovel. There's another story about him where he got invited to give a lecture in Boston. And um, for some reason, there was some miscommunication, and he arrived a day early. And nobody picked him up from the airport. So he took the taxi to the Zen Center. And when he got there, everybody was like cleaning, setting up chairs, preparing for his arrival. And so apparently he just walked in the door, nobody noticed, and he just started cleaning and getting <laughs> ready, ready for his arrival. <laughs> so, friendliness, compassion, delight, and equanimity. Is this a... Uh a order, like yeah. order? Yeah, let's make it an order. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, I feel like, when I look at it, I just feel like compassion comes first. Uh-huh. Like, that compassion is the doorway to friendliness, and right. then delight, and then being. Sure, you can think about it that way. I, 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 if, I, if I were to think about it as a sequence, I would think that friendliness is what's opening the door. Yeah. And compassion is what comes in the door. Okay, I see it. You know. But if you see it the other way, then <laughs> we can fight about it. <laughs> I think that the four measurables are similar to the eight limbs, where not even necessarily an order, although some say the eight limbs are in order or the measurables yeah. are in order, yeah. but all of them depend on the others. Mm -hmm. And it's not to get fixated so much if yeah. there are uh, a continuum or an order, just that they all work together. And if you're missing any one of the eight or any one of the four, yeah. then it all goes to shit. Yeah. So it's just like, how do they work together? And some days, the third one might be the first one. Yeah. Some days, the seventh one might be For the sure. second one and so on, depending on what you need and where you're at. Yeah. I think that's a great way to say it. In, in, in the Buddhist tradition, mudita is translated usually as sympathetic joy. 
sympathetic to it. <coughs> you can try this just in our community, you know. When you see someone else <coughs> realize something or get something, to really see if you can feel the joy in someone else's joy. Yeah. Usually at work, you know, someone else gets a promotion and like, <laughs> my, my, my younger brother, who some of you might know, is a really great musician, and he, he always says, when, when, whenever we get together, we always share music, um, and then he all, I, I sometimes share with him people who play some of the instruments he plays, and he always hates it. <laughs> and, he, and he says, you know, don't you know, like, musicians hate anyone that makes anything like what they're making. <laughs> yeah. But I'm just wondering if, if there's a uh, link between the S-A-I-N yeah. and this, um, especially yeah. the 134. Yeah, so, so the process of accepting is this. Okay. How do we allow in what's showing up? First, compassion, then friendliness, then delight, and then equanimity. So I think as all of you know, we could take the text that we're just skimming and go so much deeper. And we could look more deeply at all of these practices because, uh, for example, really exploring what happens when you go to the end of your exhale uh, is quite fascinating. Really exploring new material, new sensations materializing and changing and passing away and feeling that with your whole body is, can be a very deep insight. But what I wanted to end on, because we've been looking so technically at how our mental apparatus works, um, is just that the, the qualities that are being cultivated in our practice are all geared towards deeper and deeper realization of not-self, which motivates a, a deeper commitment to service. Because emptiness in action is ethics. The response to seeing that you are not the center of the world is service. Thank you very much. Let's take a break for 10 minutes. Does this sound reasonable? Um, have a cigarette? <laughs> After all that, really. Does anybody do that anymore? <laughs> Don't answer that. <laughs> um, and uh, in our 10-minute break, it would be nice to set up the room in a circle uh, for our last bit of time together.
And uh, although there might be lots of questions from this, I have to make a phone call. My son doesn't want to take the streetcar home from school. So I said, oh, can you just do it this time because I'm teaching and I, I can't leave at 3.30. And he says, I am not leaving unless you pick me up. <laughs> so I have to call him. <laughs> this is called negotiating. <laughs> I never took this course, but learning on the fly. So let's have a 10 minute break. I'm going to have a cigarette and talk to <laughs> Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls. <laughs>